Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Brian Babylon. And when I went to apologize, I elbowed her in the titty twice. I was like, oh, boop, boop, boop. Oh, my bad. Sorry. <laughs> that and more. But before that, I just wanted to give a little shout out here to one of our $25 per month Patreon patrons. That's Taylor Mitchell. Whenever someone signs up to become a patron of ours at patreon.com slash risk for $25 a month or more, we give them a little shout out here at the top of the show. You can become a patron of ours for less than that, $5, $10 a month, whatever it is. We dearly rely on the help of the fans of the show to keep this whole thing running. That's all at patreon.com slash risk, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash risk. And there's lots of bonus content there and other perks and prizes. It's a wonderful addition to being a part of the risk community if you go there and join. So um, yeah, become a patron and help us out. Help keep this running. Also, at Risk and the Story Studio, we use Stamps.com to save time and money to help grow our business. I can mail any letter or package just using my computer and printer. You can avoid the hassle of having to you know, stand in line at the post office. You can create your own Stamps.com account in minutes online with no equipment to lease, no long-term commitments. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail with your own computer and printer. Stamps.com makes it easy by sending you a digital scale with which you can automatically calculate exact postage. They'll even help you decide the best class of mail based on your needs. And of course, no need to lease a postage meter. And right now you can enjoy the Stamps.com service with a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus postage and the digital scale Without long-term commitments, go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com, enter RISK. Stamps.com, never go to the post office again. Now here's the show. Chillax, Chilantro. <laughs> Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is LTJ Bukem behind me now. <laughs> Sounds like a colorful character there, Mr. LTJ Bukem. And this is a colorful episode my friends we're calling this week's episode triggers <laughs> it was uh it was actually a totally last minute decision to call it that we were gonna call it something like uh parents are people because parents play a huge role in all three of the stories today uh, good parents bad parents and uh, as one of our storytellers put it her father was in the middle <laughs> But as we were putting the episode together over the course of the last week, the, um, the conversations started up 
amongst the staff, as they sometimes tend to do. You know, people saying that, whoop, hey guys, uh, might such and such a group of people be a little bit offended by what happens at the beginning of the first story? Or, ooh, wait a minute, wait a minute, guys. Might some folks be uncomfortable with the last part of the last story? (laughs) And holy shit, might everyone be kind of rattled by the second story? So we have a lot of those kind of conversations. Listen, if you are new to Risk, welcome, my friend. Step right in. This episode is pretty typical. There's some hilariously funny moments in it, some profoundly frightening moments, and some absolutely beautiful moments. Unlike other storytelling shows that you might have heard on the radio, you know, like NPR and such, Risk really dares to go into some of the most intense, some of the most sensitive areas of people's life experiences. And our audience, our beloved Risk fans, tend to have very powerfully mixed emotions about it all. If you check the comment section on the listen pages at our site, risk-show.com, there's often very passionate conversations about the stories there. We always say that we, the show's producers, don't necessarily endorse the choices described or the attitudes exuded by each individual storyteller. We curate the show with a conscience and with compassion, but we don't necessarily mean to promote every uh, angle from which things are presented. Does that make sense? We also often say that um, the series itself, the title of the series itself, Risk, You can take that as a sort of overall, overarching trigger warning that the stuff that's shared here can be pretty real and raw. You know, as I put it once, the experiences that people are describing here, like they they came as surprises to the people who were living them. Their lives didn't come with trigger warnings. So we tend to go light on actual in-your-face trigger warnings before most of the stories, right? But I'll tell you, if you buckle your seatbelt and open your heart and mind, you are going to have some absolutely amazing vicarious experiences from listening to pretty much any episode of this show. Okay! Let's get to our first storyteller today, the comedian Brian Babylon. He shared this one at the Risk Live show at the Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles. The next time we're there is very soon, May 13th. Now, Brian has done Risk a few times. His story, Dick Meat on a Diaper, from a 2012 episode of ours called Live from L.A. That one is considered a classic by the fans. Anyways, it's great to have him back on the show. You can find him at brianbabylon.com. Here he is with a story we call What What in the Butt.
this story is like about two, two and a half years old, and I don't know what Coachella this was. I say Coachella like W, Coachella. That's how I say it. If you know what Coachella is, it's a music festival where white girls dress like Native American Indians and you do drugs. It's fun. Fuck it. I heard about it and had an opportunity to go. This is when Drake was headlining and The weekend was there and I went to go see my favorite band, Tame Impala. That was my excuse. So I'm like, fuck it, I'm going, right? So I was there and when you're my age, when you're in like that Sam Jackson era of your black male life, it's certain things that checks off the list. You don't fuck around in skinny jeans, you don't listen to the tune yards, and you don't go to music festivals and go hard in the paint and do drugs and shit. But I want to get that off my bucket list. So the morning of the, like the first... I guess night at Coachella where I was going to see Tame Impala, ACDC was performing, Ghostface and Raekwon. It was a great day. Had some Alabama shake sprinkles in there. Everything was popping. That morning, well, let's go to the night before, I did a lot of drugs. That was like one of those excuses where you do Molly. And I don't know if people know what Molly is. It's a party drug that young people do that makes you want to rub and fuck everything. It's cool. It's real fuzzy and shit. I can't do a full Molly pill, because I'm older. So I do a half one. That's what I do. I do a half seat. The night before, I did like two half seats, okay? (laughs) Fuck it. Coachella, right? I had this new combo that my buddy, fuck it, I say it. If you do Adderall and Cialis at the same time, like you focus and you fuck it. It's great, right? So the morning I woke up, I was with this lady friend, and we woke up, and she woke me up coming to America style, a Zamunda blowjob. So I woke up to a blowjob, was like, boom, Coachella, man, this is just great, right? So this girl sucking my dick, I realized that she's giving me jazz hands when she's doing the twisty motion, like it's a lot of this, jazz hands, and her fingers are just stuck out, like, I'm like, what the fuck? Some of these jazz hands, yes, ass blowjob, right? And then she sees me looking at her, and she's like, oh, yeah, my fingers don't have joints in them. (sighs) Like, damn. Like, so now I'm rewinding all the times we hung out, and I'm realizing that what was wrong with her fingers. Like, I never seen a white girl go to a sushi place and ask for a fork. That was the first thing. (laughs) She didn't fuck with chopsticks. She texts funny, and she used pens real funny. So I knew her fingers were weird, so I was like, so I'm like, oh, damn, I'm, I'm doing shit for handicapped people. You know, I feel, I'm an advocate. That's the way to start your day, to a handicapped BJ. You know, before you go to the music festival, you get your, all your stuff, you get all your drugs laid out. You know, what are you going to wear? Maybe a little sweatshirt because it's going to get cold in the desert late at night. So we go off and it's time to get the drugs popping. So I'm like, fuck that. It's like Tame Impala Day. I'm going to do three half seats. <laughs> fuck it. YOLO. <laughs> three half seats of the Molly had like two mushroom Rice Krispie treats. Right? Young people shit. Things that Sam Jackson would be ashamed if he's like, get your ass in the house doing drugs. That's what he would say to me if Sam Jackson saw me doing this, right? So we get to the music festival. It's great. Ghostface was great. We see Alabama Shakes. 
They're great. Tame Impala rips shit up from Perth. They're amazing. I'm having a great time feeling fluffy as fuck. I knew I was fucked up because I stepped on this lady's foot. And when I went to apologize, I elbowed her in the titty twice. I was like, oh, boop, boop, boop. Oh, my bad. Sorry. <laughs> right? So, so, so I'm like going into like ACDC. And I'm not into ACDC, but I mean, I'm feeling great. It's, you know, when in Rome, fuck it. They murdered that shit. It was an amazing performance. I'm like, man, ACDC did great. They had a fireworks show after their set. And then this girl walked up to me and she said, hey, your leg is bleeding. I'm like, what? There's blood dripping from out of your shorts. Your leg is bleeding. I'm like, what the fuck? Wow. I felt in the up part of my thigh and I looked up and it was blood on my hand. I'm like, what the fuck was that? I don't feel shit. I don't feel no pain. I don't feel like somebody stabbed me. So then, because you know, like I'm starting to freak out. I'm like, oh, this is crazy, right? So then I started walking and I'm realizing this feels moist as fuck back there, right? I'm like, what the fuck is going on? Across the field, you see like the porta potty area, you know, it's across this field. And then I eye a larger handicapped porta potty stall that I feel will suit my needs because I need more room in this situation, right? So I'm walking like to the porta potty thing, like sort of like I'm wearing mom jeans, but got like a high waist daddy walk to it. So I'm like, oh God, this feels weird, right? So I see like this person who's wheeling their friend in a wheelchair to this handicapped porta potty and I'm like fuck that so I started kind of like double stepping so the handicapped advocate that I was in the morning was totally erased I'm trying to beat this handicapped person to this handicapped stall it's getting a little dark and I'm like you know like this is weird I still don't feel any pain so I'm not really tripping out so I get into the handicapped stall and I pull my shorts off and look at my underwear they're soaked in blood I'm like what the fuck I feel like a 13 year old girl in junior high understanding life for the first time like what the fuck is this no one told me right so I realized that my butt is bleeding now what I didn't tell you guys was out of all the drugs that I was taking at the Coachella one drug that I did not take and I had been taking for the like last couple of months was a stool softener because I was having internal hemorrhoids and when you start realizing you need stool softener and internal hemorrhoids your ass should not be at Coachella that's when you realize that shit don't mix right so I'm in this porta potty freaking out and I call my mother right Cause you know what, I blame that shit on the molly. Cause you so calm and like, fuck, let me just call my mom. So, my molly voice is real warm and like not as intense. It's like, hey, what's going on, mom? She's like, Brian, what's going on? What's all that noise? I'm like, yeah, I'm at a music festival. Hey, listen, mom, my butt's bleeding. She's like, what? Yeah. She's like, Brian, are you with white people? I'm like, yeah, I'm with white people, ma. I'm with white people. She's like, Brian, you can't do that. You just can't be with white people at music festivals. They'll do anything. I'm like, Ma, listen, you can't. It's cool. They're cool. Come on. Come on, Ma, relax. So she's like, did you do any drugs? I'm like, yeah, I did drugs. Like, what did you do? I said, I did some mushrooms that are natural, but I did do some Molly. She's like, what's Molly? I was like, it's like a party drug. It's like ecstasy. It's like Molly. So she's like clearly on the internet Googling shit. And so she's talking to me. And she's like, okay, here's what happened. And she gives me this like over the phone 
shitty-ass WebMD-diagnosis that makes sense. And fair to say, my mom is a retired surgical nurse, so she does have medical experience. So she's like, here's what happened, I think. Those internal hemorrhoids you had a few months ago came back, and you didn't take your stool softener, and one popped, and that molly crap, and she doesn't curse. She says that molly crap has, like, muscle relaxers and a whole bunch of mess in it, and your butthole's loose, and you don't feel anything, and the blood just fell out. And I'm on the phone, like, with shoes, nothing here, and a shirt, like, yeah, that sounds about right. That sounds good diagnosis, Mom. That's a great diagnosis. So she's like, so does it hurt now? She's like, what color is the blood? I'm like, is it dark or bright red? I said, it's bright red. She said, okay, well, it should stop bleeding because once this hemorrhoid bleeds out, it's over. So clean up and just go home, drink some water, and lay down. Don't go back to this festival. I'm like, okay, I'm going back to the festival. But I'm like, okay, mom. Okay, I won't. So I'm in the bathroom, and I turn, like, the light flash on my phone, and I put it in the pocket of my shirt, and I'm like, I'm like that's smart. That's smart that I did that, right? So I'm looking around, and I threw the underwear in the corner. Like, whoever finds that, psh, let your mind race. I fashioned myself like a little MacGyver tampon of just toilet tissue and I put it in the crack of my butt and I put my shorts back on and then I go back out to face the world. And then when I opened the door, that handicapped person was like, what the fuck were you doing in there, man? I'm like, ugh, shame, shame, got it. There's a surprise in there for you, my bad. My penance of this crime against myself and just and what this is all about was I want to go back to the house that we rented and just, you know, shower off and just have a blunt and just make this shit go away. But my friend said we couldn't leave until we saw Alesso. And I don't know if you know what Alesso is. It's this horrible-ass European electronic music where it's all just build-ups. And I don't know if you ever had an asshole bleeding situation <laughs> Where you like thinking about your life and life decisions, and you have to sit through like your life is over. It's horrible. So many lights, so many bass drops, and just me like, what the fuck is this about? You guys have been great. Thank you very much. Smoking cigarettes on rooftops in fishnets in the morning with the moon still glowing. And here comes Jesus in an astro van rolling down the strip again. He's stoned while Jerry plays. He said, Life ain't ever what it seems. These dreams are more than paper things. It's alright, mama, you're afraid I'll be poor along the way But I don't want to see those tears again You know Jesus drives an Astro van Yes, he does I said, This is Risk. This is Mount Joy behind me now. And we just heard from Brian Babylon. Now, I was talking at the top of the episode about, you know, conversations behind the scenes here. 
And here was a case where uh, we, people on the staff, were talking about how some folks might find one of Brian's jokes in that story problematic. That joke about uh, how getting a blowjob somehow made him an advocate for the disabled. Now, knowing Brian... I know that he often just throws caution to the wind with some of his joking around and associations he makes. And that often makes his voice so surprising uh, in good ways. <laughs> All right. Now, in this case, we went over the story be- beforehand. I mean, I went over the story beforehand with Brian. And I said, hey, maybe you don't need that part. But in his experience, the blowjob was really where that particular journey began so then it was performed that way live and then uh, we on the staff said okay well maybe we don't run the story at all or maybe we run it but try to cut out the references to blowjobs and or the handicapped or maybe we just run it and realize that fuck it some people are going to be rubbed the wrong way but risk fans know they can hash this stuff out amongst each other and with us in the comments section and so on. Ironically, Brian's most famous story from his risk appearances is literally about being an advocate for the handicapped. And then he, he, he looks back in that story at his time spent as working as like a nurse's assistant working with severely handicapped children. That's the story I was referring to earlier called Dick Meat on a Diaper. But you know what? Now would also be a great time to point out that one kind of story we're always looking for and always calling out for on the on the podcast are stories from the disabled. People with mental illness, people with, you know, physical handicaps, uh, people with, you know, learning disabilities. We are always looking for stories from people to share those sorts of life experiences. And anyone can find us at any time at the submissions page at risk-show.com. Now, you know who wasn't problematic in the least (laughs) in Brian's story there? His mother, right? It's Mother's, (laughs) it's Mother's Day soon. And you know what? The best thing you can do for your mom is get her some flowers for crying out loud. Pro Flowers sent me the 100 Blooms for Mom bouquet that they've prepared for this Mother's Day. Oh my gosh, it is so gorgeous. It it comes with a free glass vase for just $19.99 plus shipping and handling. And if you really want to make a statement, you can upgrade to a premium vase and include gourmet chocolates for just $10 more. Choose the delivery date you want and Pro Flowers are guaranteed to arrive fresh and beautiful and stay that way for at least seven days or your money back. I have to say, it's the staying fresh thing that has kind of taken me by surprise. I don't know how many days it's been, but they are still looking gorgeous. It's been, I don't know, maybe six days or so. Moms love fresh flowers, and Pro Flowers makes it easy to send the perfect Mother's Day gift with this huge bouquet. Don't forget all of the moms in your life. Mom, grandma, etc (laughs) etc the only way to get 100 blooms for mom with a free glass vase starting at 1999 is to visit proflowers.com 
Click on the microphone at the top right corner and use our offer code RISK. That's proflowers.com. Use the code RISK when you click on the mic. This stunning bouquet sells out fast, so order today. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from the remarkable Tammy Ray. We go out on tour with the show at least once a month. I'm about to take the show to Denver on May 20th. But Tammy Ray shared her story at our recent Minneapolis appearance. And it was such an honor to work with her because, as she said, she considers herself a total introvert. And she'd never shared such a personal story on stage before. So she really took a risk. And I'll talk more about her at the end of the episode. But first, for our next story, I think a lot of our listeners are going to find this one unnerving. It's also a slightly more abstract than many of our stories. Moloch Masters is the pen name of a woman who writes horror fiction. She explained to me that writing about scary stuff is a creative and constructive way to channel her feelings about some of the darker secrets that her father and her grandfather and her great-grandfather harbored when she was a girl. Now, I recorded these memories of hers in a car with her in an empty parking lot in North Carolina. It's various snapshots of a family with some shadowy tendencies, some skeletons in the closet. I think the subject matter made us both uncomfortable. But as you'll hear, Moloch Masters is a fascinating woman, and she's shining some light in some murky corners. I'm a huge fan of the psychologist Carl Jung, and this story reminds me how he was always talking about getting to know the shadow within you. He said, one does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. So, here she is now. This is Moloch Masters with a story we call In the Shadows. Thinking about a time when me and my dad bonded, it was a dead or alive video. You spin me right around, and we got up and we started dancing to the video. And my dad stopped me and he's like, "Do you see the way he shimmies? Let's shimmy the way he shimmies." So we started to shimmy, and it was so fun because my dad was always so guarded. And he just totally dropped it all, and we just had fun, and it was it was really great, because that was a moment that was just for me and him. My dad had this uncanny ability to put up walls around himself. 
It was just like this magic force field that no one can get through. So he was he was six six, and uh, like just how big he was, no one would mess with my dad. He had to develop that ability to keep his defenses strong because everything that was going on with his parents, he just he had to build a wall between them. He had to build that wall to, to keep himself safe and sane. He, he was an escapist. He read fantasy books like No Tomorrow. And, you know, his world was about Star Trek and, you know, movies and just anything that had nothing to do with reality. Sci-fi, fantasy, horror. That was his land. But when you tried to bring him back into the real world he would always veer back off into his own land. He was always there, but he wasn't really present. I was a big fan of metal music. One of the recurring themes in an album I listened to a lot, a lot was Killer Be Killed. Or kill them all. I know a lot of people say, well, this stuff is bad, so it's going to make you violent. I gravitated towards that because I was already violent. That was already within me. I inherited that. It was something that has been a part of my family for years. I was living in Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio, and there was a boy, his name was Paul, and Paul was a stereotypical dork. He had those big, thick, black glasses, and he was a lot taller than me. He was really pale, and I was attracted to him. I liked him, but as a child, I was probably around nine years old, maybe eight, I didn't know how to express my feelings for him, so I started to punch him. I didn't know why, but when I would hit him and I could see the pain register on his face, it felt like fireworks were going off. It just, it was very satisfying to me, and I was just fascinated by it. One day, my grandparents were talking about how girls can't beat up boys and I said I can beat up a boy and I'll show you so they came along and they stood across the street while I just hit this kid over and over and over and I kicked him and I hit him and my grandparents were laughing and cheering and waving their arms like this was the best thing they'd ever seen that was the first thing I can think of where I started getting really terrible. I remember when my dad got really sick, I was telling him he was a terrible dad and like, how could he say this and how could he say that? And then he just looked at me and he said, some parents rape their children. I'm not perfect, but that kind of thing happens. I 
I didn't know what to do or what to say. I was in complete shock. And as time passed, I realized that that was him telling me that my grandpa not only abused his own wife, but abused his children as well. If you were looking for darkness in my family, you didn't have to look far. I remember finding a microwave in the dark room, and I opened it up, and the smell that hit me was a smell that I've never smelled before since. It was this horrid stench. It was thick. It was alive. It was dead. It was so many things at once. And I looked inside the microwave and I saw brown splatters, mold, and a lot of fur. Flattened, furry things on the bottom of the microwave. I, I was horrified. I was scared. I, I didn't understand what I found. And I took it to my dad. My dad didn't have a reaction. My dad looked in the microwave and he just was like, yeah, that's your great grandpa. He was a very messed up person and he got a lot of pleasure from harming smaller, weaker things. He was throwing the rats in the microwave, and he was watching them die. And that was his entertainment. I didn't understand. I didn't have any backstory. I didn't know why this person... Who was really nasty to everyone. There was no question he was a bad person. But I didn't understand, like, why someone would go from just being a jerk to everyone to killing small animals. And my dad just... It was so familiar to him, he didn't even need to examine it. And that scared me. My mom had no concept of who my dad was. She's always worshipped authority figures. What the authority figure says, you do it. She always followed the rules. She didn't have that inner voice that was calling her to the dark side like my dad did, and like I have. In that way, like, I related to my dad a lot more than my mom, but I got a lot, along with my mom a lot better because my mom was always nice. I remember when Silence of the Lambs came out, like, he would quote that movie over and over again, like... So I ate his liver with a nice Chianti and some fava beans. And, like, we would all quote it to each other. And things were definitely odd. 
like amongst the family members because he'd bring up topics like, would you ever eat anyone? I would say I'd eat the people I hate because I was getting bullied and it made me feel powerful to say, yeah, I'd, I'd eat those jerks, <laughs> you know, but he was very difficult to read because he did have that force field ability. And the things he kept inside the force field were as important as the things he was keeping outside. My dad's closet, it was a regular closet, but there was a wall that didn't go all the way up to the ceiling. And if you climbed up the wall, there was a whole new room in there. It had shiny wooden floors and it was really neat. And the kids weren't allowed up there. Everybody knew no kids allowed. But of course, when you're a kid and your parents tell you not to do something, that means you're going to do it a lot more. At least that's how I was. I would go up there and I would read everything in boxes under pillows and just... I remember finding a magazine and it was a little magazine it had three staples in it and it had four illustrations every illustration was a different color and the first illustration was of a woman jogging and it said she wouldn't be good to eat because she doesn't have enough meat on her. Her bones would be ropey and rough. And you might as well not even bother. And there was another picture and it was in a different color. And it was of a bodybuilder. And this bodybuilder, the article said, would be a waste of effort because his muscles are also way too tough to eat. And then the next picture was of an obese man and it said that he had too much excess fat on his body and not enough edible material. So you would have to deal with too much waste product. And then there was a regular guy, a little heavy in the middle, but, you know, not obese, just a bit big. And it said because of his sedentary lifestyle that he would be the best person to eat because his muscles would be soft and he had the right amount of fat to keep the meat moist and you wouldn't have to worry about disposing of a ton of waste material. And the title of the article was What Kind of Person Would Be the Best Male? At that time, I had a lot of bullies, so I really believed that some people would be better meals than human beings. So, 
when I should have run away screaming. Part of me was fascinated. Part of me was laughing at it. And part of me was confused. The things that were hidden up there didn't really seem bad. My friends' parents were hiding porno magazines. My dad was hiding just articles and anatomy books. I was very attracted to the anatomy books, and that's why I continued looking through his stash because the first time I saw a picture of an illustration of a man without skin I felt alive my nerves came to life I could tap my fingers together and I would feel a feeling of absolute ecstasy going up my arm and moving down my legs and then going to the tips of my toes and moving back up, going to my scalp and then my scalp tingling. And all I'd have to do was look at that picture and tap my fingers together. I understood that for some people, porn magazines are porn. But for other people, human anatomy books are porn. And I couldn't get enough of it. If something turns you on, you... In my family, you know, we come from a lot of conservative Christians. So sex is very bad. So if anything is sexy at all, you hide it. And you don't talk about it. And that was a kind of sexy that I understood and a kind of sexy my dad understood too because it was hidden. When I was a child, I didn't eat very much. But I hated ham. I hated ham. So when my dad came to my bedroom and he said, I cooked some ham. Most of it's done cooking. Would you like some ham? I said, I do not want ham. I do not like ham. I don't want ham. And he said, well, this isn't regular ham. This is the best ham that you're ever going to eat. And you'll be very sad if you don't try any. And I said, I don't care. I don't want any ham. My dad leaves, and then he comes back. And he has this little pink piece of meat in his palm. It's light pink. And there's like a strange gossamer coating on one side of it. When I look at it, I know it's not ham. There's no fat marbleized in the meat. The color's wrong. There's just something not right. 
But I pick it up and I take a bite of it and my teeth cut through the meat like I'm biting into Play-Doh. I chew and my mouth floods with saliva. I don't taste the salty ham taste. I don't taste the meaty ham taste. This is something completely different. This is something unlabeled. And my brain is flashing that signal. But it also tastes really good. I look at the meat and I can see where my teeth had cut through it. The fibers of the meat were compact. The texture of the meat was almost like velvet. And my dad said, don't stare at it, just eat it. So I ate the rest. My dad goes away and I continue to think about this delicious meat. And I go downstairs because I want to sneak some more. I don't want him to have the satisfaction of knowing that I think it's delicious. But when I'm on my way to the kitchen, he, he stops me. He gets in my way. He's blocking me from the oven. He's blocking me from the kitchen. He's blocking me from seeing what's going on in there. And if he was just cooking ham, why does he have to shield me from that? I tell him that I want more ham. And he says, there is no more ham. I go back up to my room because when my dad puts that wall down, there's just no getting past it. I was just left to wonder, what did I eat? I kept looking for answers to the question I went back to the alcove in my dad's closet and all the magazines and anatomy books were gone my Dad died in 1999. He had 14 tumors in his brain, and one was the size, size of a lemon. After his death, my mother would not allow any talk about anything he ever did bad. He was dead. It was just time to leave it alone. But I needed to talk about it. And when I said, well, that time Dad did this, my mom would say it was because he had 14 tumors in his brain. My dad gave me the ham before those tumors had a chance to grow in his brain. I would love to blame the ham incident on the tumors, but I can't. I feel it's important to talk about the bad things my dad did because that's a part of who he was. I don't want him to be watered down. I don't want him to be generic. 
he wasn't generic. He wasn't watered down. He was alive. He was vivid. He was colorful. He was good. He was bad. He was in the middle. I just don't want the man I knew to become a part of someone else's mythology instead of who he was. I have no doubt what I ate that day wasn't it wasn't ham. I know what ham tastes like. I believe that my dad fed me human flesh, which makes him a cannibal. It makes me a cannibal. Intentionally, unintentionally, it's what happened. My dad, he always wanted to go in his own direction, but sometimes the direction he went in was the wrong one. But at the the end of it all, I forgive him and I love him. So over time, I've noticed that the mind has a way of blocking memories that are extremely traumatic in a person's life. But it also has a way of lucidly recalling moments that are poignant in a person's life. And sometimes those poignant moments can also be traumatic. A lot of my childhood is made up of those lucid memories mixed with conversations with family memories where I've learned that I have a lot of blocked memories. When I was a little kid, I lived in a lot of several small southern Missouri towns right off of Route 55, little towns that nobody really paid any attention to as they drove along Route 55. Maybe they'd stop and get gas or something like that, but they had no idea what was going on in those towns. We were poor. We lived in a lot of trailer homes. We would move around in those trailer parks biological family quite often lived nearby us. Mommy was beautiful. She had long, wavy, dark hair, and she was very curvy and really loving and kind. Daddy, he was, they were both short in stature. That's where I get that from. And he was really quick to anger. And generally, when he got angry, violence followed that. He had usually some kind of crew cut going on from my memories of him. My first lucid memory of him actually was from when I was about four years old. We were walking. I think we were on our way home. Mommy and Daddy started getting into an argument, and Daddy just went racing ahead of us. I don't know why, but I decided that I was going to run after him and try to catch up with him and walk with him. And so I was running, chasing after him, going, Daddy, wait! Daddy, wait! Wait for me! And I had a glass soda bottle in my hand, and I was trying to balance it so it wouldn't spill as I was running after him. And I was almost right up to him. I was so close to catching up to him when I 
tripped over the railroad tracks that I was crossing and the glass soda bottle broke and I fell right onto it and I cut open my hand. And I looked at my hand and I knew that I was in pain because there was a deep wound and it was bleeding, but I was shaking and crying, not because of that, but because I knew I was in trouble. And sure enough, daddy turned around and he just started yelling at me. How the fuck could I be so stupid as to be running with a glass bottle in my hand? What the fuck was I thinking? That is so fucking stupid. There was nothing I could say. Mommy caught up and she said, why are you yelling at her? She has a cut in her hand and she needs stitches. We have to go to the hospital. Daddy got mad and ran away. I don't know where he went, but I know he wasn't at the hospital. Mommy's sister came and picked us up. My second memory of his angry outburst was when I was about five years old. And we were walking, holding hands, because we were walking in town, and I had to hold his hand. And I saw a moment where I thought I could make myself look smart. He always thought I was stupid, and maybe he would think I was smart. I listened to him, and I knew <laughs> this woman walking toward us with dark brown skin, I knew that there was a word that Daddy used for people with dark brown skin. And, and I knew that word, and I could use that word and impress him. And so as she got closer to us, I tugged on my daddy's hand, and I pointed proudly at her, and I said, look, daddy, it's a... And as I said the word, I realized something was wrong. And it all happened so quickly, but in my mind, it was slow motion. The woman gave me a dirty look and pulled her child close to her, and daddy <laughs> grabbed me and whipped me around to face him and just slapped me across the face really hard. And I didn't know what I was doing wrong. I couldn't understand. I was just saying what he said. I didn't know. I was so confused and I was so scared and my face hurt and I was starting to cry. And he got down and he pointed right in my red stingy face, right up to my nose. And he said, you don't say that. <laughs> I heard him say it all the time. I was so confused. I didn't know what to do. And I was so scared, and I knew there was nothing I could do to make that man okay with me. When I was seven, I remember that Daddy had joined the National Guard. And he was gone for a few periods of time. And he had been gone for quite a long period of time at this point. Mommy had taken up with Daddy's brother, Uncle Terry. And I fucking hated Uncle Terry. He was so gross and disgusting. He had long, greasy hair and wore baggy jeans that were all holy all the time, and he just thought he was God's gift to everything. He was disgusting. I hated him. And I hated him being around Mommy because they did drugs together, and she ignored us and didn't pay attention to us. So when Daddy got home from his tour of duty, he and Mommy were having a conversation in the bedroom, and I was sitting on the floor, and it started getting heated, and I knew something bad was about to happen, and I didn't know what. And Daddy got up, and he walked toward me, and he picked me up and pushed me out of the room at the same time, and he said, get out. And I went running into the living room, and I hid behind the couch because I was so scared, and I didn't know where this was gonna go. And he went into the kitchen, and it was a trailer so you could see everything. And he pulled open a drawer, 
and he started rifling through all the utensils and he pulled out a beater from the mixer and he looked at it like, this is going to work. This is the tool. This is going to work. And I cowered as he went past me because I didn't know if it was for me. And he went into the bedroom and closed the door and I heard mommy saying, please don't. We can talk this through. We can work this out. Please don't. Please, please don't. And it got louder. And instead of pleading, it became more like pain. Like she was in extreme pain. And I didn't know what he was doing to her. And I was in there and just like cowering and trying to be invisible, but wanting to go help her, but knowing I was helpless, that there was nothing I could do to help her. And I would probably get hurt too if I went in there. And I just waited and hoped that he wasn't killing her as she screamed in pain. And eventually those screams became sobs and she was just crying. And he got up and he left the trailer and he slammed the door behind him. I ran into the bedroom expecting there to be blood everywhere. I didn't know what he had been doing to her, but I knew it hurt. And she was laying on the bed under the covers, just sobbing. And I didn't see any blood and I went up to her and I started rubbing her hair and I said, Mommy, are you okay? Are you okay, Mommy? And she didn't, she didn't really reply. She just said, it'll be okay. Don't worry, it'll be okay. It was when I was an adult and had a conversation with her sister, my aunt, that I realized that Mommy had become pregnant with Uncle Terry's baby. And that beater from the mixer was used to violently rape my mother and abort that baby. I hated that man so much, and that put so much light on it for me when I learned that. They divorced soon after that, and Mommy continued with Uncle Terry. And I think Daddy hated the fact that Uncle Terry was there with her and they were doing drugs, because he tried to kidnap us a couple times. And I know it's not because he loved us, because I never felt like he loved us. I felt like we were annoyances in his life. And I remember one of those kidnapping attempts. I was nine years old, and I was in school, and I got called to the principal's office. And when I got there, Daddy was there with my middle sister. And we were told by the principal that we had to leave with Daddy. And I was freaking out because Mommy had custody of us. We didn't live with Daddy. Where was she? Did he hurt her? Why wasn't she there? He took us and put us in the car and drove down the gravel road where we had a house that we lived in with Mommy and Uncle Terry. And we went past the house down all the way to the end of the gravel road where Mommy's grandma lived, great-grandma. And Mommy's brother lived there too, my Uncle Leo. Daddy got out of the car and he told my middle sister and I to keep our heads down and not to poke our heads up, to stay hidden. And he started yelling for my little sister to come out. I've talked to her about this and she recalls this as well. She was four years old and she remembers that she didn't know where her mommy was. Neither of us did. And Uncle Leo saw our other sister and I poking our heads up and grabbed a gun. And he went outside and he told Daddy to let us out of the car. He denied it at first. Uncle Leo said, I see them poking their heads up, let them out. And so he told us to get out of the car and we went running behind Uncle Leo and they had words. And I was so scared because I didn't know if Uncle Leo was gonna shoot Daddy or if 
he didn't, if daddy was gonna come back with a gun of his own and shoot Uncle Leo. And I just did not feel safe. I was a nine-year-old girl who felt so unsafe. And living with mommy and Uncle Terry, that was horrible. Uncle Terry kind of liked my nine-year-old body. And he would do things to show me that. Like one time I was sitting on the floor and he sat on a chair right across from me and he spread open his legs and he had a hole in the crotch of his pants and he wasn't wearing any underwear. And all of his junk was just like poking out of his pants and it was just so disgusting. I didn't know what was going on in there. And he looked at me and he goes, what are you looking at, huh? What are you looking at? Like it would be interesting to me. He knew what he was doing and it was disgusting. I also remember when my sisters and I had taken a bath one time and he came in there afterwards and turned on the shower and told us we weren't clean enough and soaped up his hands and started tickling our crotches, asking us if it tickled. Does that tickle? Like it was funny. He knew exactly what he was doing to us. We had this kind of shed out back. It used to be a chicken coop or something like that. And he had run an extension cord out to it so he could listen to music. He took me out there one afternoon and he said I could go out there anytime I wanted to as long as he was there and I could hang out with him and listen to music. And there was a bed and I remember seeing that bed and I'm very grateful that this is one of the things that my memory has blocked out. I don't know what happened on that bed but I have an idea. Mommy was starting to lose her mind. She was so full of chemicals from all the drugs she was taking that she wasn't even there anymore. She was hallucinating a lot, and they were partying all through the night. All of our family had just kind of, they had tried to help, and they were pushed away. Mommy was paranoid of everybody except Uncle Terry. I think we had some neighbors that watched out for us. I remember suddenly in the middle of the night, authorities coming and taking my sisters and I away from mommy and Uncle Terry, putting us in a foster home overnight, sometimes for a day or two. And eventually that got longer and longer, but we would always go back. So we would go to a foster home for a long period of time and then go be with mommy and Uncle Terry. and. Mommy would go to a mental hospital and get stabilized, and then she would get out of the hospital and just go back to what she had been doing. By the time we were in our third foster home, this is from like age 10 to age 12, we were in three foster homes, luckily always together. I recall the social worker approaching me and pulling me aside and saying that Mommy could no longer take care of us and she had decided to give up her rights to custody of us. And did I want to be adopted, or did I want to go live with Daddy because he really wanted custody of us? I didn't even have to think twice about that. Immediately I said, adopted. And she said, are you sure? Because you guys might not end up together. And I was like, I'm so sure. I could only imagine a better life. And I knew my sisters and I would stick together no matter what happened because we had stuck together this whole time. My sisters looked at the Department of Foster Care Services later. This helped me to understand that it was just a formality for the social worker to be asking if I wanted to go live with daddy because the paperwork said that he was given the choice of either giving up custody of us 
or facing jail time. It also said in that paperwork that he had sexually molested all three of us. It also said that Uncle Terry had sexually molested all three of us. The fact that Mommy wanted to be with him so badly, knowing that, that is one of the most difficult things I've ever had to forgive in my life. So in 1984, I was 12 years old, told that I was going to be adopted by a new family and might not end up with my sisters. Lucky for us, there was a very loving couple in mid-Missouri named Celeste and Rich who had been thinking about adopting an older child. They knew they didn't want an infant or a toddler because they didn't like that stage of childhood. <laughs> so they wanted to adopt an older child. Rich worked for the Department of Social Services and had seen case files of all these kids that needed homes. And they thought they wanted to give an older child a chance at being happy in life. And a social worker approached Rich with a case file of three little girls in southern Missouri that they really wanted to be adopted together. I was 12, my middle sister was 10, and my youngest sister was 7 at this time. And they decided, yeah, they wanted to give us a chance. So they met up with us, and over a few weekends, we got to know them, and they decided, yes, they definitely wanted to adopt us. It was fall when we met them. By winter, we were living with them. And Celeste noticed that I had some anxiety, and she was a little bit worried about me because when she told the social worker that all she wanted was for us to grow up to be happy people, the social worker told her it, it might not happen because sometimes older kids, when they're adopted, just never find happiness in life. She first noticed my anxiety when I really wanted to be in a bedroom with my sisters. I'm like, no, put all three of those beds in the same bedroom because we're all going to be in the same bedroom together. We stick together. But then also I had gotten into this habit of going to the nurse's office in the middle of the day. I was in the seventh grade, 12 years old, and I was pretending that I was sick because I didn't want to be without my family. One of those days, Rich came to pick me up, and he realized that I wasn't sick, so he called Celeste and he said, she's not sick, I'm just going to spend the day with her. And he asked me if I wanted to go run errands with him and go shopping with him. And he said, since I was feeling sick, I could lay in the back of the van. They had one of those 1970s Volkswagen vans. And he said, you could lay back there since you're not feeling well. I said, okay. So he put me in there and he closed the back of the van. He started driving and I was looking up and I was watching the sky roll by, rocking kind of with the motion of the van. And all of a sudden I realized how absolutely safe I felt. <laughs> this man who had brought in a total stranger into his life was treating me like I was his own flesh and blood. <laughs> like someone that he had known his entire life and he wasn't going to raise a hand at me and he wasn't going to tell me that I was stupid for pretending to be sick, but he was just going to love me and have compassion and care for me. I was safe. <laughs> it was great. And I knew I had my whole life ahead of me. And so I have this other great lucid memory that for some people might be kind of traumatic. I was in the seventh grade. I was at 
my lunch hour with my friends, and we were outside because it was a beautiful spring day. <laughs> and something was so funny. I don't even remember what it was, but we were laughing and laughing, and we were on the ground just laughing. And all of a sudden, I realized I had to pee. And you know what it's like? <laughs> you are laughing so hard, you have to pee. And I couldn't stop it. And I just let go. I'm just like, I'm letting go. Oh my God. <laughs> But I knew that it was going to be okay because I knew that when I went to the nurse's office and said I didn't feel well with my jacket tied around my waist <laughs> and my, my new dad, Rich, came and picked me up from school, he wasn't going to tell me that I was stupid or slap me. He was going to say, oh my God, I'm so glad you're happy. <laughs> and he did and it was so beautiful. And Celeste and Rich, they were able to raise us three little girls to become happy adults, and they could not be any prouder of us. But best of all, (laughs) we were able to escape any more of those traumatic events that are thankfully blocked from our memories.
That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Tangled Eye behind me now, and we just heard from Tammy Ray. Wow, it was, like I said, such an honor to work with Tammy on her story. She'd really never done anything like that, told a story so personal on stage before, and she really took us there. She really relived quite a lot of life there. It's really something. There's a lot of life in this entire episode. And listen, we are always looking for more stories. If you know someone who has lived through an extraordinary life experience, or if you yourself just can remember a time that you were especially emotionally invested in something, there's lots of tips on how to pitch us at the submissions page at risk-show.com. Remember, we work very closely with people. We workshop people's stories, so there's plenty of time to get to know your story and do various drafts of it with us and, you know, really make sure that you're expressing what you want to express. So again, risk-show.com slash submissions. Make sure to pitch us and tell people you know to pitch us as well. Also, you haven't had the full risk experience Until you've seen Risk live, come out and see us. We are next in Los Angeles on May 13th at the Bootleg Theater. That's Risk in L.A., May 13th. Then on May 20th, we're in Denver, Colorado. We're at Denver in the Bluebird Theater on May 20th. On May 24th, we're in Brooklyn at the Bell House. Come out and see us, Brooklyn, May 24th. On June 9th, We're in Portland, Oregon, on June 10th, Seattle, Washington, on June 11th, Vancouver. Now, here's the themes for those shows, because we're still taking pitches. We want you to pitch us your stories to become a part of one of those shows. Portland, the theme is hype. Seattle, the theme is destructive. Vancouver, the theme is monster. It's June 9th in Portland, June 10th, Seattle, June 11th in Vancouver. And you can pitch us at the submissions page at risk-show.com. On July 1st, we are in North Adams, Massachusetts. That's at the Mass Mocha. The theme that night is revolting. We're still taking pitches for that one. So July 1st at the Mass Mocha in North Adams, Massachusetts. On July 8th, we're in Washington, D.C. at the Black Cat. The theme that night is one of a kind. Still taking pitches for that. July 15th, Philadelphia. Philadelphia, we are at the World Cafe Live on July 15th. The theme is Revelation. On September 9th, we return to Salt Lake City in Utah at the Urban Lounge. The theme that night is unexpected. And like I said, you can pitch us your stories if you go to risk-show.com slash submissions. There's tips and guidelines. There's even a helpful video with me explaining how best to pitch us a story. Remember, we work with you. And if you're interested in learning more about storytelling in general, you can go to thestorystudio.org. That's our school where we teach one-on-one training over Skype or in-person workshops. Also, video workshops that you can download and watch in your own time. And, of course, corporate workshops for people's staffs. 
That's all at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today is the day. Take a risk. Heavy dick meat. What? It's the biggest horse cock that I've ever seen. <laughs> Heavy dick meat. Oh my god.